Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, welcome to the Aspern NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. We're here talking on the day after the Cup Series race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course. And I'm joined by the mayor, NASCAR and NBC analyst, Jeff Burton, to talk about Michael McDowell's second victory in the Cup Series. Jeff, he's got two wins. One's the Daytona 500 and one is at the Brickyard. So pretty decent, I would say, for Michael McDowell. (laughs) Yes, two pretty good ones to pick. You know, what was so impressive about this one is, you know, he had to do it all day. And I won't say it was mistake-free. I know he, he, he got beaten on pit road there one time. Uh, but other than that, you know, it was a day that you couldn't afford mistakes. Uh, nothing large, nothing that gave up too much track position. Uh, and, and he had pace. The team did what they needed to do. Like, it was just a really put-together, well-put-together effort uh, that matched – you know, the bigger teams in the sport and actually beat them. Kudos to Michael, kudos to that team. Uh, they've shown that they're capable and and they put themselves in position and they executed. I mean, so many times in this sport, we see people put themselves in position, but they can't execute. And uh, he and his team did it. And and to be honest, it was a popular win. Like Michael's a popular guy in the garage. Uh, he, you know, he's he has persevered through a lot. The team front row, kind of the same thing. They had persevered and kept kept digging along, and you know it's it's uh, there's a lot of respect for for the effort that they put into it, and it's also respect for the for the results they're getting, and uh, they're they're taking the battle to a lot of big teams. They are, and I think you touched on a lot there that we're going to get to. I mean, fourth victory for front row, as you said, very popular victory for McDowell. Yeah, congratulated by a lot of drivers, both on the track and in victory lane and uh they were flawless like to your point a lot of other championship contenders were not and this is a team that already was on track to make the playoffs on points but they go out and they dominate and and win to get their way in and there was this was a no doubter but i want to start jeff with the race itself so there was one caution for three laps the last 77 laps of this race were run under a green flag a green flag run of nearly two hours uh, to end this race. With the end of yellows at stage breaks, this now can happen at road courses. So McDowell and his crew chief, Travis Peterson, both kind of said that they were almost anticipating that this might happen. What's your take? Because you think back on the first two cup races at this track on this layout, five cautions for 15 laps, six cautions for 25 laps. Why did this happen? <laughs> Why did we have this really long green flag run? Well, I think a couple things. Obviously, the the no cautions at the stage breaks, right? That has definitely changed the game. Uh, I think the hope was that, you know, it would create more strategies. It would create uh, more opportunities to have uh, different things going in the race. And I think that's got to be debated on the offseason. You know, is this really the no stage breaks? Is it really as effective as people hoped it would be? I, I don't, hmm. I'll be honest with you. I haven't studied it or analyzed it or, or you know, but I will. 
but that's got to be questioned, right? I mean, that's got to be part of the, you know, how do we make it better or do we need to make it better? I mean, I was entertained yesterday. I, I, I enjoyed the race, but I know a lot of people want to see more cautions and they want to see restarts. And I'm probably in the minority and saying, you know, I, I was okay with it. You know, the other thing is, I think it's clear that NASCAR has, and, you know, some fans don't like this. Some fans do like it. Uh, they've been pretty consistent about, hey, we're going to not throw a caution if we don't have to. And you know, on road courses, it's easier to not throw the caution because everybody is spread out so far. Something happens, you generally get off racetrack. NASCAR has a chance to look at it. Uh, it's easier on a road course, and especially that road course where you have you know big runoffs uh, in most of the heavy braking zones. So, you know, that's part of it as well. Um, but what's crazy is how competitive it is. You know, it's not like it's just spread out. Cars are spread out by five seconds, and it's not like that. I mean, the top three battled for the race win uh, until Suarez had his problem. I mean, they were all right there together, and then the battle for fifth and the battle for 12th, and all those battles were very close. Got a little more spread out past 18th, 19th, that range, but it's not like it just got spread out. They were very competitive racing. So some of it I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, I do think that you know these cars break better. They stop better. Later in the run, they drive better than the previous cars. The previous cars, you would start to lose brakes. The cars would start to wheel hop. You would start having issues under braking. These cars don't seem to have those issues. And so I think there's less mistakes by drivers, even though that lets you push harder, there's less mistakes. So I don't know. I think in the off, you know, NASCAR obviously is working, you know, there was a test at Richmond to try to, to find a way to, to enhance the short track program, which I think would roll into road courses as well. Uh, but, but I think that we all need to look at ourselves in the eye and say, Hey, number one, does something need to be fixed? Number two, what is it? And certainly there's no way to not look at the stage breaks. Does, does that need to stay or do we know, need to go back the way it was? And I agree with you. Like, there's no question. It was still very competitive. And there were a couple of times at a spin by Kobayashi an incident involving Almondinger. There were a couple of times NASCAR could have thrown the yellow, but they held it. And I think that was the right decision because as you said, it, it came down to three drivers who were right on that playoff cut line. McDowell, uh, he gets in now with the victory, but then you had Chase Elliott, Daniel Suarez, who currently below the cut line and probably going to need to win here in the last two races in the regular season. It seemed, Jeff, like there were just a few critical moments in the race. One was McDowell getting past Suarez in traffic, I think. Hamlin and Kozlowski were kind of in that mix, and that was critical to McDowell getting that track position that he held the rest of the race. And then, of course, there was the Suarez pit stop where the air hose got caught, and that essentially took Suarez out of having a chance to win the race. Yeah, you know, that the pass, you know, that the track, track position is huge on a day like this where you had so many, you know, you didn't have the cautions. And, and the pass in traffic, uh, getting that done by McDowell was very big. And then Suarez and his team. I mean, I look, I, I, I believe that typically, you know, we have to hold ourselves accountable and say, hey, when something happens, it's our own fault. We made a mistake. But watching that thing on Suarez and their pit crew, the way that hose rolled up around the splitter, I, I have a hard time pointing the finger at somebody and saying, you made a mistake. Now, I guess you could look at it and say the hose wasn't where it was supposed to be or it wouldn't. I don't know. But, you know, sometimes you just get a bad break. And I really felt like that's what that was. I felt like that was it wasn't a, the fault of anyone. It was just a bad break. That's my perception of it. I don't think the team can look at that because the only way to prevent it from happening again is to change something. However, 
that's just something that I just I feel bad for that team and feel bad for that for that whole organization because they did have the speed. I mean, it was not going to be easy uh, to beat McDowell, but if you get the tr- if you are able to get track position on pit road or in traffic or whatever, it was going to be very hard to pass. They were all very equally matched. I mean, I, I you know those three cars adding Chase Elliott to that group, those three cars were very equally matched, and track position was huge. And so Suarez finishes third. Elliott finishes second. And I think everybody was anticipating over the last 20, 30 laps that he did make a little bit of progress. I think Chase went from like three seconds back to two seconds back. But I think everybody thought like, surely he's just going to eat away, eat away, eat away, eat away. And he's going to be able to put a lot of pressure on McDowell. But it didn't happen. And <laughs> this is the fourth victory for front row. First uh, was at Talladega 2013. Of course, that's Dega. Anything can happen there. Second was a rain-shortened victory for Chris Buescher at Pocono 2016. They just kind of lucked into being in the lead when the race was stopped. And then McDowell won the Daytona 500 two years ago, but that was a crash on the last lap between Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano that essentially allowed him to take that checkered flag. So I had some followers. I had a podcast listener, actually, a, a loyal listener, Matthew Todd, who wanted me to point out this was front row motorsports taking the fight to Hendrick Motorsports straight up and winning. I mean, there's just, this was a no doubter. And does this happen, Jeff, without the next gen car? Jerry Freeze, the general manager for front row, was asked that afterward. And he said, Once we were able to start getting them on a more level playing field with the product that we were bringing to the racetrack, you know, our performance started to pick up. I think you started to see that a guy like Michael McDowell had a lot of talent. And now if you give him the same car that these other guys have, you know, he's, he's going to really show that he can get it done. And, and so then you advance into the next gen era, uh, the way they've consolidated the practice time. I just think it's, it gives a chance with that middle tier budget, let's say to that's going to do the right things, have the right engine program, hire the good people, have a good pit crew uh, to, to have days like this on the racetrack, the, the way the rules have changed and with the next-gen car coming in, it's really kind of played in that mid-sized team's favor that if you're doing the right things, you can be competitive. It's been a game changer, and Front Row has been a different team. What's your take on all of that? Well, I agree with that. Uh, I, I, I agree 100% with that. Uh, however, the car created an opportunity, and this team and Michael took that opportunity and seized on it just being delivered the parts and pieces to build a car doesn't make you equal to Hendrick. The putting the car together correctly, putting the right setup in it, having the right strategy, driving it the right way, all those things, yes, you have the same parts and pieces, but there are a there are a ton of options within these cars. It's not like they all go roll up on the racetrack set up exactly the same. They may have the same components, but that doesn't mean that they're all being used the same way. So yes, the car gave has given opportunity but it's not, in my eyes, 100% why they won, uh, because everybody has the same equipment and they found a way to do it. So I just think that team and Michael, you know, Michael is, is uh, he's heavily involved in that team. He's not doesn't just show up and drive the race car. He's heavily involved. I don't think that can be understated enough. You know, he's been, he's been integral in helping get that team where it needs to be. I think he's a great mentor to Todd Gillen. I think that that's a really good opportunity for, for them to have the next guy learning from a guy like Michael. Yeah, so so the car gave an opportunity, but they, they're seizing on it. And McDowell clearly is an ace on road courses, and I'm sure that plays into him being able to 
help the team and guide the team. So I'm not sure if you saw this, but Denny Hamlin took a little bit of a shot on his podcast at Michael McDowell a couple weeks ago and basically said, So you're saying that Chase Elliott can't make up 40 points on McDowell in the next four races. Breaking news, Chase Elliott's good on road courses. What are you talking about? Mike McDowell apparently is appearing on Denny Hamlin's podcast today as we speak. He's probably taping it because he was invited on because Hamlin got this so wrong. But just to put the stat out there, McDowell is the only driver in the Cup Series this year averaging more than 40 points per race on road and street courses in 2023. So I guess, as they say, Jeff, the numbers don't lie. And Denny Hamlin definitely was wrong that Michael McDowell could beat Chase Elliott straight up. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you can understand why Denny would, would make that kind of comment. You're talking about Chase Elliott and Hendrick Motorsports, and, you know, it's easy to look at a few races and say, yeah, you know, Michael McDowell and that team, they're the best on road courses. They've earned the most points. Uh, but you also know how good Chase Elliott and Hendrick Motorsports can be. So I can understand why, why, uh, why Denny would say that. And I also can understand Michael being furious about it. Like if I'm Michael McDowell, I'm like, no, I'm, we're doing it, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, Hey man, that's all, that's all good. And I think it's cool. I think it's cool that Denny said, Hey man, come on. You know what I mean? Like I, I said this, I was wrong. Join the podcast. I think that's cool too. You know, Denny doesn't mind being vocal and, and when he is wrong, he'll say he's wrong and pretty cool that he, you know, number one, that we have a driver, a current driver that's that vocal and willing to kind of, peel the curtain back a little bit and give you a, a look behind the scenes. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, including drivers and, and being in discussions, that's all good stuff. As long as it's done respectfully and, 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 you know, like that, I think it's all good. The more we can showcase our drivers and their, and their personalities, the better we're going to be. Yeah. And certainly we've been doing that about Michael McDowell and, and you raise a good point there that he is given a lot of autonomy, kind of guide direct, front row he actually was allowed to choose his new crew chief travis peterson i know when you drove jeff you were someone who was very involved in kind of day-to-day -day and almost playing you're the driver but in some ways you can be like a de facto team manager in personnel or you know direction what is that like being that kind of driver who's very intimately involved how is it an advantage how is it a distraction and why is michael mcdowell i guess well suited for it the way you were when you drove well, you, you, first you have to embrace it. You know, you have to want to do it. And, and uh, you know, a lot of drivers don't want to do that. A lot of drivers are, hey, I'm a driver and I want to play my role as a driver. And the way I viewed it was that I didn't want to look back on a race or a month or a year or a career and say, I, my success was at the mercy of others. I just, that's a miserable way to live. I wanted to play a role and, and have my success or failure. And I felt like for me and my skill set, that was an asset that I could help with that. Uh, there were some other things that I wasn't good at. And I, and, you know, I don't think that I was as good of a driver as, as Jeff Gordon. And so I had to overcome that somehow, some way, what do I need to do to be successful? So I think that is what Michael has done as well. He's looked around and he said, Hey, I need to do things to be successful. And all drivers do it, whether it's spending more time in the gym or whether it's spending more time in film or watching tape or whatever it happens to be. Right. All drivers are trying to find that edge. Uh, it's just done in different ways. And in Michael's case, you know, he does have a smaller team and it is, can be very beneficial in a smaller team, in my opinion, to have a driver that wants to play that role. And, uh, and Michael clearly wants to, and it's beneficial to everybody. All, you know, and, but everybody has to allow it. You know, Jerry Freeze has to allow it. Uh, ownership, everybody has to say, hey, they're bought in. We want him involved. Uh, if not, you start working against each other. 
Yeah, and this is uh, McDowell's sixth season with Front Row. They just renewed him, so he's he's definitely a part of that team. But I don't think a lot of drivers get the opportunity to pick crew chiefs the way McDowell has, and, and he's been very successful at it. I mean, the reason he had to, they had to go out and hire Travis Peterson was because Blake Harris, his former crew chief, got spirited away to Hendrick Motorsports, which clearly saw him uh, as, as a great prospect, best team in NASCAR. Uh, so I don't know if you heard about this, Jeff, but McDowell and Travis Peterson both talked about this after the win last night. Dustin Long wrote about NBCSports.com where they had a lunch meeting because, again, McDowell's essentially selecting his own crew chief, so he's doing the job interviews. And he had a meeting with Peterson in December, and he kind of challenged Peterson. He said, look, I'm talking to like five or six other people. And McDowell said the reason that he did that was... And so I, when I met with Travis, I had a pretty short list of guys that... I felt like could do the job and it's not just do the job. It's, it's a different fit at front row motorsports. You have to be able to do more than one thing. Um, there's a lot of crew chiefs in the cup series that are really good car guys. And there's a lot of crew chiefs in the series that are really good engineers. We have to have both. We can't have just one because we don't have enough people. We don't have enough depth to just be, um, laser focused on one area or another and all I was doing is just see if he had the fire because if you don't have fire you'll never make it in at front row motorsports you just won't you have to be a fighter because it's hard you got to do a lot more stuff than most of the people around you have to do and you got to put in more hours and you got to be willing to do more with less and so I was just seeing if I could piss him off a little bit and Peterson kind of shot back at him a little bit and said well why do guys keep hiring experienced crew chiefs instead of taking a risk on a guy who who knows what his potential could be. Um, and I do feel like that might have resonated with him because he kind of liked that comment and he felt that about himself at times throughout his career. Essentially, why are you hiring retreads as your crew chiefs? I'm the young guy. I'm an up and comer. I can do this. You're very into that, again, that, that crew chief driver dynamics and how those personnel decisions work. What's your analysis of that? And have you ever seen situations like that where drivers and crew chiefs who are going to work together, have meetings like that where they kind of push each other. And that's a good test for if it's going to work when they're actually at the racetrack together. You know, I think the wisdom in that is I think a lot of times when uh, I've been involved in job interviews, uh, interviewing people, I almost had a preconceived notion of who they were and what they were about. And rather than making them show it to me, you know, rather than saying, you know, rather than asking the question, I was more recruiting. You know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and that's a mistake. Like if you're doing a job interview, uh, you should, there's a recruiting part of it, right? Like I want to recruit you. I want to come here, but then you got to take a step back and you got to say, okay, yes, you've been identified, but, but are you really the right guy? And you need to let that person uh, explain to you why he is rather than you already have made the decision that he's the right guy. And, and I've made that mistake, not just in crew chiefs, but in other positions as well, where you have to really understand who they are and until you get to know somebody and challenge them. And, you know, honestly, Nate, I think, you know, we will <laughs> be too philosophical here, but we learn a lot about each other when we're challenged. Yeah. Right. I mean, we really do. We learn a lot about ourselves when we're challenged. And when you're talking about a job interview and it's positive, right? Hey, it's a job. We're going to do these things together and all that's just positive. Everybody's excited about it. What do you do to pull that out and bring and, 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 and make sure that you're right for each other? And I think the wisdom in, in Michael doing that was he put, put him in a position where he had to prove that he wanted to do it and see what his response was. So yeah, pretty smart. And, and look, he's right. 
crew chief in at Hendrick is different than crew chief in at Penske, and it's different than crew chief in at Gibbs, and it's different than crew chief in at Front Row. Like every team operates differently, and you could take Jimmy Johnson at the height of his. I'm sorry, Chad Canals at the height of his career, and put him in another program that didn't work for him, and he wouldn't have had the success. Like it has to be. It has to work, and and not every program is right for, for every crew chief. I think the way McDowell described it is to work at front row, you have to be a fighter. And yeah. that means, you know, you not, not only have to be a scrapper, but you have to understand, like, I'm going to have to work harder than guys at other teams. Can you maybe put that in context? If you're a crew chief at front row, what do you think that Travis Peterson is doing that, say, an Alan Gustafson isn't maybe doing as much of at a Hendrick? I think harder is the wrong word. I think different is the better word. I don't think for a minute that Alan Gutherson is being outworked. Now they might be working differently and the skill, I mean, the job may be a different job description, but you have to work differently. No, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what one has to do versus the other, because, you know, I don't think they done, they'd pull that, you know, pull all that back for me to see it. But, but <laughs> we, I do know that no matter what company you're working for, you have to work within that system. I don't see somebody outworking the top crew chiefs in this business, Chris Gavehart, you know, at, at the 11 car. I don't, I don't see him being outworked. You know, I don't see Brian Wilson at the 21 car. I don't see him being outworked. I, I think that you just, but it is a different kind of work. Is it more like, and I get what you're saying, a, a Gabehart or a Gustafson or whoever, the top teams, maybe you've got more resources. Sure. It just means your, your energies are directed in different places. Whereas if you're a crew chief at a front row or a mid-level team like that, you're just going to have to do things that if you're working in the top level of North American motorsports, you might think, oh, if I'm running a team, I shouldn't be worrying about this. I should be worrying about these other things that all these other crew chiefs are worrying about. Well, you could make an argument that someone at Hendrick Motorsports has more to worry about. Yeah. You know, they have, they do have more resources, but you have to use it. And you do have more people, but you have to figure out how to use it. Like you have to manage all that. In a small, smaller organization, there's less people, there's less systems, there's less processes. And, you know, you, you could make an argument that that guy gets to focus on his car. There are crew chiefs that work harder than others, just like athletes, you know, or anybody else. But I think for the most part, they're all putting a tremendous amount of effort in. It's just, it's just, it's just a different type of job from one team to the other. And by the way, that goes for teams that have the same funding. There is no, you know, piece of paper that says, hey, guys, this is how you, this is how a crew chief operates. If you don't operate this, you know, it's not how it works. Every every company, and I'll say this, crew chiefs within own companies work differently. I, I've been part of it. I've watched uh, when I was at Roush and, and Matt Kenseth and Robbie Rise were having all their success. Robbie was very involved in everything. I mean, he was involved in everything in the shop. I mean, he was, and we had other crew chiefs that just wanted to focus on their car or, or didn't want to work on that. They want to focus on this because they thought that was better. So even within an or, or in a in the same organization, crew chiefs work differently. Of course, that hard work also bleeds down to the driver. You mentioned him, and Mike McDowell certainly a, a popular figure in the NASCAR garage. Before he won the Daytona 500, the highlight you thought of most often with Mike McDowell, unfortunately, was like a low light. It was the the infamous crash at, at Texas and qualifying in 2008. After that, Jeff, his part time run with Michael Waltrip Racing, he starts in parks for about four seasons. Goes to Levine Family Racing, runs there for a few seasons. And as I mentioned, he's been at front row since 2018. 
They just extended him, which is probably really good timing because I mean, his, his market value has probably never been higher, right? I mean, what's your take on the Michael McDowell story? I mean, clearly one of perseverance and a guy who had talent and just suck it out. So Martin Truex is better today than he was 10 years ago. You, Michael McDowell is is winning races when there, you know, a lot of people didn't think he could because the equipment he wasn't, you know, the equipment he was in wasn't great. You, you start looking at how people's careers go up and down. And we take these snapshot views of, well, this guy is good or this guy is great or this guy is average. And it's these little snapshots. We don't really get to judge until the career is over. You know, that's where I give front row a lot of credit is that they looked at Michael McDowell and they said, I like that guy. Like that guy can get it done. And they've stuck with him while they built this program. Anybody can watch a basketball game and say, LeBron James is really good. If I could have him on my team, I would be better. Anyone can do that. The very best at judging talent are able to look at people when they aren't at their best and see the capability of a person. That's what great general managers do. That's what great owners do in sports is they, yes, superstars are superstars, but they don't do it by themselves. And so you have to have the people that fit in a program and the people that can identify and, and say, hey, yeah, I know he's not the biggest name out there. And we don't have this long history of him winning MVPs, but he's really good and he's good at these things. So he fits in our system because of this or he doesn't fit in our system because of this. Those are the best. It, it's it's just that simple. And if you said to me today, hey, would you, you know, are you going to build a team? Who, who are you going to get? It's easy. I'd go, I got a list right here in front of me. It's easy. I'd go down a list and I'd say, well, he's really good. He's really good. He's really good. But these guys that haven't won a lot, am I smart enough to pick them? Yeah. Am I smart enough to say that guy there's got talent that we haven't seen yet? And on top of that, am I willing to have the patience to see it through? And so it's difficult. To, to judge talent, but a guy like Michael McDowell is a really good race car driver. And he's, but he's got to be in the right situation at the right time to be able to show it. And that goes for all of them. It goes for all of them. Joey Logano, he got ridden off. <laughs> Daniel Suarez, Ross Chastain. Yeah. I mean, go down the list, right? And there's so many people. Chris Busher, another great example, just won two races in a row. You know, if you're a great talent guy, don't come to me and say, hey, I think I'd take Truex and Hamlin and Larson and yeah, no kidding. But <laughs> who's the guy that isn't winning that can get it done? That's 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 the people, the people that can identify those. That's the best people. And what strikes me about like all of that is, I mean, I can remember when I first started covering NASCAR like 20 plus years ago, hearing you or Ward Burton or Bobby Labonte talk about that the way you became a star back then, the way you joined an established team is you spent four or five years like a B-level team and and then you got your shot. And that's obviously changed a ton in the last decade or two where not only is it that young drivers are, are thrust in opportunities, but they get their shot and then they're done. McDowell strikes me as kind of being the antithesis of that in multiple ways. I mean, he, he got a shot, but then he hung in there and he stuck around and made it to where he's now won at two of the biggest racetracks in the world in the last two and a half years. I mean, what kind of perseverance, I guess, I'm, is what I'm asking. Like, does it take for a guy like that, for, for him just to stick around through four years of starting parks and so many years of just running 25th or worse, 
I mean, I guess it probably says a lot about him that he just he just never gave up. Well, he never gave up and mainly he never gave in. So what, what happens to so many people in that kind of situation is they become victims. You know what I mean? They, they're, they are like, I can't succeed because it's never me, right? It's they won't do, they won't do, this guy won't, that guy won't, the sport's this, the sport, right? And when you get like that, you, you, you won't be successful. If, if you can't wake up and feel energy, and I'm not saying every day because we all have bad days, but you have to have a certain amount of energy and enthusiasm and optimism uh, to continue on. And, and, you know, Michael has an edge about him, but at the same time, uh, I think his faith has been very important to him. His family is clearly very important to him. Uh, he's been committed to his career and while doing it the right way. Uh, he pushes people around him. I work with him with the driver's council. He pushes us. I mean, he pushes us. That's what you should do. You should push for the things you want. But you, this sport will eat you up. It is so cutthroat. It is so... And people just don't understand. You know, every day you wake up, you know they're, they're lined up to take your job. Every day. And Michael has endured, you know, people having sponsorship, you know, all kinds of things. And he's endured through that. And it's it's hard. I mean, he's been, it, think about it. It's not like he signed a five-year deal. I mean, it seems like every year he's having to renew his deal, right? He's year to year to year to year. I mean, you don't know where you're going to feed your family next year. Shocking news here. Those guys don't make the kind of money that most fans think they make. They don't. Now, I'm not saying that they don't make a good living. I'm not saying that at all. But it's not what a professional athlete in every other series makes. It's not like that. So it's on top of the passion that you have for, for the sport. Are you going to have a job? You know, and it's every year. It's been every year for that guy. And so I, I, I'm speaking a little bit out of context, but in August, early August, we know what he's doing next year. That's early <laughs> for him. Like, yeah. I, my perception is the majority of the time, his, his career has been, you know, they've been signed down much later in the year. And that takes a certain amount of toughness to get through that every year. And, and family support, too. Hey, you look, you got to give his family a ton of credit because that is stressful. That is a very stressful way to live. And, and uh, he's persevered. And look, there's more struggles coming. You know, it just is. This is a very, very tough sport. Enjoy the moments when they're big because there's, you know, there's, there's downtimes coming for everybody. Yeah. And he did enjoy that moment. He's got five kids and they weren't at the Daytona 500 win because of the pandemic, but they were all there yesterday in Indy. And that was, it was cool to watch them all get to kiss the bricks and, and all that together. Certainly interested to see what comes down the pike for him and a lot of interest in terms of the future, Jeff, as well about Shane Van Gisbergen. He was definitely one of the big stories, all the international drivers in this race coming in. So SVG gets a 10th place. So he's got top tens in his first two cup starts, which I saw a stat today. It's the first time in more than 40 years that that's happened. I think Terry Labonte in 78 was the yeah. last driver to yeah. finish top 10 his first two cup starts. So how did you think he did? I think everybody knew it was going to be tougher than Chicago, not a street race. Other guys have experience at this track. It seemed like he got used up a few times, you know, once in particular by Alex Bowman, but SVG also flexed his muscles a little bit, maybe unintentionally, but Ty Gibbs wasn't very happy with him. I mean, it seemed like he gave yeah. as well as he got a little bit and, and hung in there. Look, I, I, you know, obviously Ty Gibbs upset and Ty did a great job coming back, you know, and getting a decent finish. Look, I thought Shane did a really good job. I, I, I think that, you know, what, what we saw at Chicago was everything lined up and, and because Shane's so good, he executed. 
Others made mistakes and he didn't. Uh, he was comfortable on the road course. I mean, I'm sorry, on the street course, nothing to lose attitude. Everybody else, it's very difficult to have that attitude when you're racing for points. It's one of the big advantages when a cup driver goes run Xfinity. That's a major advantage or runs trucks. You got nothing to lose. And so he came into Chicago and I mean, he took it to him. And he, he didn't make mistakes when a lot of our regular guys did make mistakes. So then, you know, there was talk about Indy. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know. I did think it would be more difficult because it is, he almost had an advantage. As weird as that sounds, he almost had an advantage going to Chicago. And that's new. We, we talked earlier about this car, what it's done, what it's changed. This is one of those things. The reason other drivers have not been able to come into this series and be successful is because these cars drive so damn bad. Like the brakes were horrible. They wheel hopped. They didn't have independent rear suspension. They had a standard H pattern. You didn't have to use a clutch. Don't get me wrong. They were very good transmissions. But now all that's better. Now, you know, you don't see them wheel hop. It's it's, how do you not lock the brakes up? And that's a skill set that those guys that road race all the time are so good at because they don't deal with wheel hop. Our guys could deal with wheel hop and figure out how to make it work without having that problem. And that was a major advantage. And they had way too much power for the amount of weight that they had, all those kind of things. But when he came, it was like, okay, I'm sitting in a car that I'm accustomed to. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was very close and on a street course. And so this car has opened the door to have these things happen. And so I was very curious at Indy to see what the regulars were going to do. And I don't think you can separate. Daniel Suarez is a good road racer. We know that. But he was faster than SVG all weekend. He was faster. But Chastain was not faster. So he was more on equal ground because of the speedway of experience that the cup guys had. And he ran well. He finished top 10. He did a really good job, but it did show all of us that, you know, our guys are really good. You know, Brody, he ran, Brody ran really well. He finished 22nd or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had good speed. He had a bad, had a couple bad breaks. He had good speed, but him being here made our guys step up. It just did. And that's normal, right? So when you're, when you, you go a certain speed, if you're at a test, if you're at a race or whatever, it's the, it's, okay, we're good enough, right? And I don't want to say you back it down a little bit, but you don't push more because when you push more, there's wreck on the other end of that or there's mechanical issue on the other end of that. When he came in, everybody went, oh, I might need to do this a little better. And so he raised the game. In my opinion, he raised the game for everybody. You know, I'm I'm very interested to see what they do with what happens with him in the future. Clearly, there's conversations about him coming over here. I hope they don't think they can put him in a cup car and run a full season. I hope they're smarter than that. I wanted to ask you about that because I, I heard you talking about that on the broadcast. I mean, what would be your ideal schedule? It sounds like Trackhouse probably would like to have him full-time in Cup in 25 with 24 kind of being that bridge gap year. And would the ideal schedule be get him in as many ovals on truck, Xfinity, and then maybe a few in Cup next year? Would that be the way to do it? So here's the problem. So the, when you're where he's racing, he road races all the time. Yeah. We get seven. And our guys race every week. So once you start running a cup car, these cars are so different than everything else. It's very difficult to take something from that to here. 
So his road course abilities aren't going to get worse, but by comparison, the people around him are going to get better because he's going to be having less time. Now he has this core and this foundation of which to build off of. So he's going to be very, very competitive on road courses, but he's not going to be on ovals. It's that radically different. And so he's going to have to learn a whole new skill set. And, and so to, if, if, if he's going to run full-time cup in 25, think about the experience that he's got to go gain. Right. So how do you, how do you do that? And it's, it's, and by the way, the stuff costs money, you know, so if he could put a, I mean, in a perfect world, he would, he, you know, in a perfect world, he would just run as many ovals as he could get his hands on. And I know the temptation will be to run him in road courses. And by the way, you should. But but if you had a choice, if the schedules worked out and you had a choice to run him in a in a cup road course race or a truck or an Xfinity oval, run him in the oval. Like he's going to be okay missing a few uh, a few road course races. He's not going to be okay if if they don't give him a ton of time on ovals. It's just that different. It just is that different. He's got the ability. He's got the ability. The question is, is there going to be the patience that is going to be required for him to get to where he needs to be? But to get there, the clock's ticking. And these guys are going to continue to get better with these cars racing on ovals. This car is still in its infancy. And the, the gap is going to continue to widen. It actually is in my opinion, these first two or three years, even though guys may not have been running very well, that experience that they've had in these first two or three years is going to be hard to overcome. And there are going to be some greats that come in and are able to do it, but the average driver uh, is going to have a very, it's going to be a longer period of time to get up to speed than it normally would have been. So speaking of ovals, there's a test on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway oval going on today and tomorrow. Goodyear tire test. Certainly seems like NASCAR and the track want to be back on the oval next year at the Brickyard. It sounds like that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, it's, it, you know, when you start doing, you know, you start doing tests and, and the conversations start, you know, there's a little bit of truth in every rumor, right? Uh, so it certainly seems that way. You know, I think Indianapolis Motor Speedway is much like the Roval having the flexibility to run either one, we should take advantage of it. I propose that the Roval date just have a date and not decide if it's going to be a road course or an oval until like June and then make a determination. Where's the best racing, right? Is the ovals or the road? What's the best racing? And I mean, why the hell do the teams need to know? I mean, why, why does it matter? You could have an oval race or you could have a road course and that, the tracks being able to, to be either, provides a, a great deal of flexibility. So having Indianapolis Motor Speedway being able to run, and it's really a true road course. I mean, it's not a roll, it's really a true road course, but why not use that flexibility? And we've we've done this for several years. So I think it I personally think it's appropriate to go back and run run the brickyard and on the oval. I think we should try it. I mean, you know, what's the harm? And I will I do want to say this, Nate, you know, the place is so big that it's hard to get a sense. There was a lot of people there this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were there, and it was a lot of people there. And They estimated over, I think, 120,000 for the weekend. I think they said 60 on Sunday. So it was, it was a better crowd than they had the last few oval races there. 
Yeah, and I don't think we should forget that. Like, we need to give the fans what they want. The teams and drivers, will, whatever. That's a high-quality road course or a high-quality oval. Historically, and for the for the prestige of it, I'd like to see us on the oval. But let's give the fans what they want. And where's the best racing? And I think that until we go back to the oval, and by the way, we left the oval, right? And the racing wasn't very good there. But at the same time, we were working hard to make racing better at mile and a half in general. Now the best racing with this car is mile and a half. So while it's that way, you know, let's go try it. I, I think it's time appropriate to try it. To your point, I'm I'm not trying to get on Marcus Smith's bad side. And I know it's too late for this year, but I love your idea that I wish they were running Charlotte Motor Speedway Oval instead of the Roval at this point, given how that the car is raced on the intermediates and the big speedways, right? Well, I don't think that's getting on Marcus's bad side. Marcus loves doing things that the fans like. I mean, that's why he built the Roval. I mean, he had the courage to build the Roval when, when nobody else would do that. Marcus Smith said, I'll do it. It's a tremendous strength that he has and that he, he looks and says, what's good for the fans? Like, that's what's on his mind. You know, what's good for the fans is where's the best racing? And I, I just, I mean, I, I know I come up with some weird ideas, but they do have flexibility. And Indianapolis does have, like, Daytona has flexibility. Uh, you know, there is some flexibility. Pocono has a great road course on the infield. There's a lot of, lot of flexibility that we have with racetracks. Let's take advantage of it. Maybe not this year, but maybe starting next no, year. No, not this year. Too late for this year. <laughs> you know, you mentioned it. So we got two races left in the regular season. Harvick, Keselowski, Bubba as the three drivers and points who are above the cut line. I think we all thought Harvick and Keselowski were fine until yesterday. <laughs> until. <laughs> and, and now, like, if there are two more winners from below them, then one of them's getting bumped out. So what's your read on Watkins, Glenn, Daytona for the playoff cut line the last two races? Well, and they're separated by two points. We just watched Daniel Suarez and Chase Elliott run top three the entire day. And if Chase Elliott would have ever gotten track position and had the right pit stops and all those things, would he have been beaten? Same with Suarez. If Suarez comes off pit road with the lead, could McDowell have beaten him? I don't know the answer to that, but it would have been a difficult pass. And so you're going to another road course. And the, both of those guys just proved to you that they compete at a high level. And don't forget about Ty Gibbs. Ty Gibbs was fast. He got spun early. He came back. He had good speed. Alex Bowman had good speed. Amendinger, he's in the race. Justin Haley ran second at Chicago. There's people that can win. And there's Daytona coming. So if I'm Harvick and I'm Keselowski, I better assume that I'm in a point battle. You have to assume that you're in a point battle at this point. You're in point battle with one guy. I think that's what the six recognize in this race. They finished, they ran their strategy. They finished fourth in stage two. Yeah. And on a day where Harvick didn't run well. So Brad Keselowski got stage points of that. He finished 20th. Uh, Harvick ran, the Harvick did not have good speed. I think those guys, you know, Kevin Harvick finished 22nd. And he got no stage points. So I think that the six recognized it. And then and they, they ran their program accordingly. I think they're both going to have to do that this weekend. 
Another layer to watch NASCAR and NBC coverage at Watkins Glen in Daytona. I know you got to get out of here and do motor mouths. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Our thanks again to the mayor, Jeff Burton, for joining us on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Thanks to motorsports manager Emily Conboy for setting up the episode. You can watch the video episode of the podcast on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel and also find more NASCAR America Motormouths content and highlights from across the racing spectrum. That's at the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. The NASCAR on NBC podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's also now on Amazon Music as part of the NBC Sports Collection on Amazon Music. You can find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head to Amazon.com slash NBC Sports. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series will be at Watkins Glen International this weekend. You can head to NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for all the information and schedules on how and when to watch. That's at NBCSports.com slash NASCAR. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on social media at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.